Welcome to the Consilience Conversations, the first of hopefully many conversations with Dr. Matthew Roos. And Matt, right before I give out your CV, why don't you say hi to everybody just so that um, they know I'm not making you up. <laughs> uh, that's right. I'm here. I'm real. Uh, hi, everyone. And uh, thanks for having me, Alex. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you. And I'm glad that this has worked out uh, so far. And I'm looking forward to it uh, working out even better and better. But let me give the, uh, the listeners who have some idea of me, um, some idea of who you are. So just looking through your education history here, which is actually taking me a little bit of time, you have a, you were summa cum laude electrical engineering at the University of Missouri. You have a master's of science in electrical and computer engineering from Purdue University. You have another master's of science in biomedical engineer engineering from Duke University and a PhD in neuroscience from Johns Hopkins University, which it looks like you've worked at for the last five years, as well as several uh, professional stints as an engineer, a principal engineer, a senior DSP engineer for uh, Dynamic Telecom, a senior communications engineer for the MITRE MITRE Corporation and, the cooper and a cooperative education employee in the CIA. Um, and just looking at um, your, your publishing history, you have over 10 scientific publications. You've taught in five or six now different positions. You've been invited to talk at least three times and professional awards you've received over the last nine years are the NIH NIDCD National Research Service Award, the Johns Hopkins GSA Travel Award, the uh, Johns Hopkins APL uh, Special Achievement Award, another Special Achievement Award, a Red Award for Excellence and Dedication, the Hart Prize also from JHU for uh, Neurally Integrated Computing, uh, which I'm looking forward to talking about, and also the Outstanding Conference Publication uh, this very year, 2018, from Johns Hopkins. So we are very happy to have you, Dr. Matt Roos. Great to be here once again, Alex. Uh, thanks for that uh, in-depth introduction. Yeah, well, it's important for people to get a sense of who you are for what we're doing. And um, so I guess I should explain with a quote the, what we are doing, because uh, everybody knows that I'm an English teacher. I'm, I'm uh, attempting to master the five epics, and I, I would make the claim that through my work and through the curriculum I've built out in San Diego, that I am a master of the great five epics of uh, Western literature, and that I speak in great depth about them, and I intend to use them and bring them up uh, in the context of these conversations that we're going to have, and show that sort of the new methodology in the humanities that I'm trying to develop is one that is based on empirical science and particularly uh, on the principles for, uh, that of neuroscience, which uh, you and your many colleagues now are, are producing in the science departments. I think that the, the appropriate, the most appropriate and the most advanced uh, relationship to humanities and the hard sciences should have today is a one of cooperation, not of ignorance. And so E.O. Wilson, a Harvard sociobiologist, says in the beginning of chapter two uh, of his great work, Consilience, for which this podcast is named, um, in the great branches of learning, you will see at once why I believe that the Enlightenment thinkers of the 17th and 18th centuries got it mostly right the first time. The assumptions they made of a lawful material world, the intrinsic unity of knowledge, the potential of indefinite human progress are the ones we still take most readily into our hearts, suffer without and find maximally rewarding through intellectual advance. The greatest enterprise of the mind has always been and always will be the attempted linkage of the sciences and humanities. 
The ongoing fragmentation of knowledge and resulting chaos in philosophy are not reflections of the real world, but are artifacts of scholarship. The propositions of the original Enlightenment are increasingly favored by objective evidence, especially from the natural sciences. And so that's what I think that we're doing here. So Matt, and I guess the listeners should know, Matt and I know each other from a long time ago. We had a mutual friend. We're friends as well as, I suppose, now colleagues. And so um, I hope it's okay to call you Matt on the air. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, Please do. Great. Thank you. So what attracted you to this project? Obviously, you're a serious scientist with a serious CV. And now you're talking to like sort of a literary guy, a literature guy on podcast. This isn't a conference. This isn't, you know, this isn't a lab. And I'm not the usual sort of colleague that you would have. What is, what is it about this project that you find important or that draws you to it? Uh, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a, some might say it's sort of an avant-garde idea. It's something different than uh, probably other people have been exposed to. And I think you and I don't even know how this is going to, <laughs> to play out. So part right. of it is, I suppose, just the curiosity of where this is going to go. You know, I'm a person who... Um, is, is curious about all sorts of uh, aspects of knowledge and science. And, but I will say my knowledge of medieval or classic literature, epics, poems, uh, et cetera, is um, uh, reprehensible, perhaps. It's very poor. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at a minimum, I will uh, learn a lot, I think, through this. Um, another aspect is just that, uh, to be quite honest about it is I have a little bit more time on my hands than I have had for a while. Um, taking a bit of a sabbatical from my job. Um, you could say I'm in between jobs kind of deciding where I want to go next, um, whether in the neuroscience, electrical engineering, computer science realm, these things um, have somewhat more connect are more connected than many people might think, or they can be in certain ways. Um, but the point is I have a little bit of time. And so this seems like sort of a fresh and fun and interesting thing to do. So, um, and of course, I know you have lofty goals and your, um, or um, your consilience quote really, really spoke to it. Um, so I, that is not, you know, that that was a driving force or is a driving force for you. Um, it's not for me, but not because I'm not a believer in it. It's just something that I haven't been thinking about. And so maybe you will uh, change my mind on that over time. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting the opportunity to do that because I think part of being avant-garde is showing that this there's a real space that exists that uh, one can draw fruit from that people haven't yet gotten to. And so hopefully we really are riding the appropriate wave. And um, well, I just think that you're going to bring an element to this podcast that it really needs because say even yesterday I was making, I was making, a, um, I was making a statement, I was making a claim about the symbol of the Medusa um, that one sees not only as deep as the Iliad, but also in, in Dante's um, Inferno as a representation of generalized threat that humans produce. And so as a, as a generalized um, representation of threat, it has a generalized response, which is petrification, which is a threat response that we share with, say, a rat. Sure. And so a claim that I then made is that the idea in this text was that what separates us from being a rat is that we can actually regain motor control from our anxiety circuitry and then choose to explore that which is dangerous or threatening. And that that is what increases the domain of our known territory, not only in a physical way, 
like being able to map the world, but also in terms of our known ter territory, which is cultural, which is also part of our territory as humans, how we push forward the limits of knowledge, which is what we're always doing in an exploratory way. And so being able to say access you and have you say, oh no, there's no such thing as an anxiety circuit. That's total BS. Or, <laughs> or, or, or saying, well, actually, yeah, in my lab, I, you know, I've, I've actually studied rats doing this and that. Um, I think that's going to add uh, an, an element to uh, the things we're trying to do that uh, has been sorely missing and that will, I think, very much anchor us in, in well, I could uh, segue off that just for a moment, Alex, which is that, you know, for that example of, um, you know, a rat and its response to its environment, which is very primitive, of course, to, to humans. Um, but we are, we have brains that were built upon many of the main components of these uh, primitive animals. And we still have, you know, aspects of those that are not always overcome by our sort of newer brains, if you will. And so, Right. It's good to think about that. Good to know that. Good to understand why someone may behave, including you or I, in, in a way that we do, um, as well as thinking about ways to um, sort of overcome or combat uh, sort of our, our ancient minds, as, as some people might call them, um, and get the best we can out of our, our newer minds, our more rational minds. That is precisely, I would say, the heart of this project, getting us to understand the relationship between the ancient old mind, the motivational centers, and what our prefrontal cortex produces, our, our sort of willful consciousness. What is the appropriate relationship between those? Because I think that is the most serious question of our day and, the, and a question that we are in a unique place to answer, especially with some hard science and some data from, uh, I would say, the bowels of the greatest stories that exist. And so one other thing that we were going to do, and I, I know we need to jump into what we're actually talking about today very fast, is we were thinking about uh, talking about specific authors. And as we develop a listener base, and you listeners who are listening now, you can weigh in on this. And uh, something, Matt, I should say is that listeners can actually uh, call in separate from the podcast and leave a message, and then we can include the message and then address it. But something we were thinking about doing is addressing contemporary authors like like Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurologist and uh, theorizes about the creation of AI and thus knows a lot about brain science. Uh, people like Jonathan Haidt, who write on educational issues related to neuroscience and clinical psychology. Yak Pengsep, who writes about affective neuroscience and has done some groundbreaking work in motivation. Um, also some computational neuroscientists like you, right? Like uh, Ogi Ogas and Saigadam, who did that uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts. And so something that I, I thought we might do on here is also consider contemporary thinkers who are basing some of their work on this data that we are now generating, these massive quantities of data that we now are, are generating that are, if, uh, that are in, if anything about them is prejudiced, they are far less prejudiced due to their sample size and wide ranging application than any uh, studies that have ever existed have been especially those conducted by the social scientists using mostly college age uh, kids uh, 18 to 21. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And uh, well, first of all, I, yeah, I, I think that's great that you are um, engaging with the listeners and I, I hope they do come up with some, some great questions or comments or thoughts about uh, some of the material we'll, we'll be going into or just have suggestions about other material that we may not have thought of ourselves. Um, and this may be a little off topic, but since you brought up big data and sort of the social experiments that can be done with that, um, I, you know, 
my first order response is I totally agree with you. On the other hand, there's always things that are missing. Um, mm. You know, there are those in the real world that don't have access to the internet or those I mean, in the United States, most of us do not everyone, but most do other countries less so um, and some more so um, anyway, just, just saying that there's always little nuances that we need to think about sometimes when we, it is very important to know where the data comes from, what the assumptions were that underlie uh, that data, the, 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 the collection of that data, um, et cetera. But these are, you know, issues that we can probably have or perhaps tackle when we get into uh, more specific example, examples. Well, I think that's important too, and an important aspect of doing the podcast in the long format discussion that's not antagonistically, antagonistically oriented as so many in philosophy departments are, which I had experience with when I was an undergrad slash grad student in philosophy, which is that uh, we can get into the wide agreements that we share and also the nuanced sort of problems of the data. So we can use the data as evidence, but then also illustrate uh, what is potentially a problem or could be improved in the specific experiment, mm -hmm. showing that what we're going for is we're essentially being teachers. We're trying to, and, and we're, we're really being scholars and that we're trying to understand these phenomena together and bringing together our respective fields of knowledge, which we've spent our entire lives generating in order to reach a shared understanding that's far deeper of actual reality than we would have achieved alone. And that we share this with the people who listen. Um, the, uh, we're increasing our fields of competency as we communicate in a way that we would never be able to do alone. Because in order to know what you know, I'd need what? Another 20 years of education? Uh, That's about <laughs> like, right. I need and another I life. certainly would need a lot to get to catch up with you, too, in your, your, your area. So, um, and uh, I, we talked about this briefly offline, Alex, but to inform your, your listeners, uh, just like any field has their areas of expertise, so does neuroscience. So, you know, I'm not here to um, offer myself as an expert or to sell myself as an expert on every aspect of neuroscience. In fact, I'm uh, poorly informed about probably most areas in neuroscience, but I do have my areas of expertise and I do have at least a passing knowledge of a lot of areas. So it'd be great for, um, you know, through these discussions, um, it's a great opportunity for me to bolster some of my own knowledge in these areas um, uh, alongside with you and your, your listeners. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, I think that's exactly the right perspective and that perspective alone would be useful to share with others. And so before we jump into the confirmation bias, and I sort of wanted to link that to what you, what, and ask you about what you meant by sort of the ancient brain and the new brain. Mm -hmm. and maybe you could explain that sure. for us because I think a lot of us are going to be building our neuroscience knowledge up from the, from the bottom up but um what is your specific interest in neuroscience right now and perhaps we can cater some of these conversations to that uh yeah sure i think um you know some of it will be apt for our discussions and some of it will not or maybe not today but who knows what will happen down the road um <laughs> you know i to give the audience just a a little bit more about my background i, I studied uh when i in my neuroscience uh, uh studies I focused on the auditory system, and at that time, I was really interested in how um, sensory processing occurs. That is, you know, we take it for granted that I hear a sound, that I hear a sound, you hear a sound, and you you just perceive it. You just know what it is. Um, right. Uh, and also on the motor side of things, you know, if I want to reach out and grab a glass, um, I just do it. I don't I don't think about how I do it. You, 
you know, as a child, you might've had to learn how to do it. Um, but even then we really don't remember that, that learning period. Um, so anyway, I studied, uh, audition and used, uh, most of the studies were with Matt's, uh, uh, rats and mice and, um, recording from neurons in these early auditory areas, because what happens in those areas is, um, perhaps one example is that, uh, you learn the sounds that are behaviorally relevant and your sort of neurons are in a sense tuned to pick up those sounds. Ah. And so this is, you know, a, a common, uh, an example that we can all relate to is uh, people that don't same, speak the same language as you or I have, of course, accents. And to, to some extremes, they can't even hear or make certain sounds that we can right. and vice versa. There are plenty of uh, uh, different Chinese languages that have sounds that we not only can't we make the sound, we might not, we might literally not hear the sound that they're making. Um, right. Because it never imprinted on our neurons during just, our imprinting phase. Right. The perception, the, the neurons that um, sort of convey that perception never learned any need for that. Um, so, so anyway, I've mean, a little bit off. Go yeah. ahead. Well, that just, I, I don't even mean to be asking questions yet, but that's just so fascinating. So that means to some extent, our environment is literally shared experience with other humans, that part of what imprints on our brain for the rest of our life that enables us to hear those around us and distinguish between in-group, out-group to a serious extent, because you definitely know the difference between your language and another, and mm -hmm. people who talk slightly differently from you in your own language, you totally notice as well. People will laugh at you, for instance, if you sound a certain way. Um, and so part of what your knowledge of the world is, is just that which is shared via language from other humans in your direct location, uh, during a specific time in your right, life. Right. So it's like literally at a and physiological not all, not only level. Information yep. just, yeah, yeah. Just at the lowest level you might, uh, be able to imagine. Um, you are in some sense steered, biased, uh, tuned to, certain aspects of your environment that you were exposed to, uh, including your, uh, you know, interactions with those in your so that's, group. So yeah, you are actually physiologically imprinted by your group. But I thought it was just, I thought yeah. everything was just culturally constructed and I was prejudiced, Matt. But <laughs> that's possible, but, uh, or certainly the latter part, <laughs> but, I, but I doubt it. Yeah, no, but that's just incredible because that's, a, I mean, that's a claim that I've been making for some time and just to have that rooted uh, immediately in just your your specific area of interest right there. And I'm, I'm actually very interested to ask you in the future, and I'm going to generate some questions about the motoric system and its relation to the sensory system and its relation to the development of the prefrontal cortex, because I have some ideas, I think, mm -hmm. about that. Uh, but I think, well, <laughs> we're never going to get to what we meant to talk about because everything's too interesting, which is a great yeah, problem. Right. But I would say since you introduced an evolutionary perspective and you said that we have this ancient brain that is everything, and then this prefrontal cortex that's been developed, and over, what, the last seven million years, our brain has tripled in size, and um, the fact that the first system is the motor system, and on that is built the sensory system, and on that is built the prefrontal cortex system, suggests to me that the, the root of action, or the root of thought is in action, suggesting that sort of the ultimate philo philosophical science would be ethics then from an evolutionary perspective, from an ontogenetic and phylogenetic developmental perspective? Well, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't, the, the one thing I, I'll say about that is, um, 
So I think that's a that's a um, a fine sort of first explanation, first sure. explanation in your description of um, you know there's a, a sensory system, motor system. Um, perhaps left out of that is a is truly a an affective or right, emotional right. system. Uh, you know, the animals have emotions; they they have feelings, um, and you know, sort of what's added been added on to is in sort of as hominids rose is. Uh, greater powers of, of reasoning and, 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 and greater memory, um, but also social aspects too. And some of those are, sorry, what I want to get to is that the, the prefrontal cortex is intricately connected with all the rest of the brain. These aren't really sort of like uh, different systems that are either in contention or although sometimes they could, they can be, um, but by and large, what makes us human is not just the prefrontal cortex and our ability for complex thought and reasoning, but you know, many of our human experiences are tied deeply to our emotional right. centers um, and re rewards uh, related with those. Right. I mean, and I think a major aspect of mythology, and this is a claim made by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, but one that I can bear out through my, my teaching is that the sort of language of mythology, anti the language of scientific uh, rationality is the language of affective emotion, of human experience, of the phenomenology of being mm. alive. And so what sort of mythology represents are moments of importance that imprint themselves on you precisely because of their emotional significance, rather than presenting an objective, rational view of the world that is anti-emotion like science. And so I guess even from this perspective, I would suggest that that's what we're trying to do here. Speak both those languages and see whether they say the same thing because probably they do. Mm -hmm. And that will give us a much richer idea of what a human is and what a human isn't and the specific boundaries within which a human can develop. It seems like we can become anything, but not anything all at once. Um, it takes, yeah. Well, I might have to ask you to clarify that, not this moment, or that's a, certainly a, a topic uh, that we can discuss. And well, certainly not all things at once. Uh, I would suggest that there are certain things that, humans are by nature um, uh, predestined for, I mm. suppose, um, or incapable of, we can't, we can't do it all, we can't learn it all. Um, and and these, these may be simplistic concrete examples of this, but there's a reason that we uh, used to write down the phone numbers of people we didn't know, and then the cell phones came along and we store those phone numbers. And so uh, that's just a simple example of you know, I think of the brain as a computer, but the, but it is very different from a from our modern day computer because we don't uh, store and recall information the way that a uh, that a computer does. Um, we don't process information identically every time it is exposed mm. to us. Uh, that is perceptual information, or when we take an action, whether it's a cognitive action or a motor action, um, it can be different every does that time. Mean the frame? Um, how how so how can it be different every time? That's very interesting. Well, there's, um, well, the, the, the first order answer to that is that we are, you know, our nervous systems are composed of neurons and those are the fundamental elements of the nervous system and, and synapses. Um, and those are biological, um, you know, molecules and cells and they have failures too. They're not precise. They're not, you know, they're not, uh, now computers kind of have failures too but they're binary. They are always locking to ones and zeros. At least binary computers are binary. And our brains are not. They're sending these electric signals, chemical electrical signals uh, back and forth. 
but they just don't have the the precision, the repeatability because nature is messy. Mm. Um, and, and the cells are always uh, rebuilding themselves, regenerating, you know, proteins um, uh, fold in the correct, incorrect way, or they're destroyed for uh, various reasons and the body has to regenerate them. So uh, the short answer is that the, just the nerves or the neurons are always changing. So um, they're sort of randomly spiking. That's our terminology for sending out these short bursts of signals to each other. And those are sort of like, there's always a little static, I guess is a way to put it, or white noise. In, so there's, in the there's sort of um, uh, error built into the system. That's Well, I think that's, a, there's something really interesting there. Uh, just that term error built into the system. And what we don't still don't know, many neuroscientists uh, work on computational models to help get at this question. We don't know whether that noise or that error in the system is truly always noise in the system that we just are able to overcome by the vast parallelized network that is our mm -hmm. brain? Um, or does it actually, is it, may, it may be that that noise is actually um, important or instrumental to our, to our thinking. Um, oh. You know, one example in a way is there, does that somehow uh, is uncertainty or, or probability rep represented in some ways by that noise in the system? Um, is it not purely independent noise that's not related to the system, but it's actually a um, something that benefits the system? Is is one that's fascinating because the, so that's, yeah. there's a lot of there's a philosophical argument there, but there's there's uh, there are real computational models that are trying to pursue pursue answers. Well, to that's questions. interesting because that uh, is that a quantum model? Because I, I recently read in in Kurzweil about the Eastern and the Western interpretations of quantum mechanics, and the Eastern one being mm -hmm. that um, there that certain electrons do not take place or do not exist in certain places in the universe until they are focused on by a perceiver. Whereas the Western mm -hmm. far more scientific sounding idea is that all electrons exist in a probability field at all times. And because mm -hmm. the measurement instrument you're using is also composed of a probability field, the interaction between them takes place in a specific place. And so you're just measuring where both of those objects happen to be in time. And so um, it just sort of sounds like the error or excuse me, the uncertainty that's built into the system could be uh, that, that that idea could be modeled on the, the quantum field model of uh, where things happen. And, you know, if I were to just quickly theorize off the cuff, it would say, I would say, I wonder to what extent uncertainty is built into our system because of the uncertainty built mm -hmm. into the system within which we exist. Um, mm -hmm. because of, because obviously we need room to adapt. Um, yeah, well, there is, uh, to, 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 to comment on the quantum part, you know, everything, there are all sorts of, uh, researchers out there doing all sorts of things. Some of which I think are just sort of crazy. <laughs> uh, there are certainly people that have speculated on sort of quantum level models of the brain and how that may be, uh, in some way fundamental to its operation. Uh, I will go out on a limb and say, I think that's just BS. But I don't think there's anything uh, about quantum physics, particularly that makes us who we are or allows our brains to operate that they, the way that they do. But that is not to say that this sort of uncertainty, that this, um, this noise in the system is actually not something constructive or useful right, uh, right. by the system. And, 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 and I use, I'm using the noise term noise pretty loosely here. If it's truly noise, if it has, some would say it's totally uncorrelated or independent of the system, okay, then that's, that's just noise. Um, 
But if it's something that we observe as noise when we monitor the brain and signals from the brain, uh, that's our, that may just be a limitation in our understanding of what those, what signals are really being represented or what right. information is right. being represented there. Um, and another, we don't want to go down this road right now, but you know, perhaps this is a, perhaps that noise in the system, if, if we saw things were perfectly repeatable, we would be certainly questioning, um, do we have any free will? Uh, and I'm not a philosopher and I don't really desire to dive deep into that and take on that challenge about answering whether we have free will or not. But um, if the brain was perfectly repeating what it did every time it, um, some stimulus was presented to us, then you'd be pretty suspicious that maybe free will does not exist. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Maybe that can be a goal towards which we work trying to tackle that process. And I can maybe ask some questions mm -hmm. like, even if we had a perfect representation of that, which was happening in the brain at the specific moment before choice, wouldn't there still have to be a choice that dictated the next mo moment within the brain? Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. what comes first mm -hmm. in, in that? Is it the physical cause or is it the choice itself? And I think that's where... We're, I think that's where the real stickiness is, but I think we can get through that once we, once we really try, because I think also part of this project is we don't, uh, we don't like a rat avoid the threatening questions. We explore them. And that's something I always, let's, let's right dive right. right. Into them. I think, I think some of these questions and especially in the humanities departments have because of their ineffability or their inability to be answered completely. Some scholars have just decided not to try and answer them at all. And, and it's mm -hmm. like the domain of known territory amongst these scholars have, has, like with a rat who is being punished over and over again in different parts of the cage, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller until now their domain of expertise is such a small sort of corner of the world that it barely has any relationship to reality. And so people like us emerge to say, okay, well, let's talk about what's real and uh, apply our, you know, our knowledge basis to it. But so, Matt, I'm going to ask you a question, and excuse me if this is sort of a lazy teacher question trying to link two things together, but if you can handle it, I'd be, okay. it'd be really great. So I wanted you to explain a little more the basic concept of the sort of ancient brain that you brought up and what that term means and sort of the new brain, how, how, you, how they sort of very, very broad strokes uh, uh, kind of interact with each other and whether that could be related in any way to the topic that we we're supposed to get to today on the confirmation bias, which, you know, this is like a syllabus day, so right. we're not going to get too much into it. But yeah, yeah, that's okay. Uh, and, and I think I can make that connection or, or find a route uh, to that. Um, well, you know, when we talk about the ancient brain, there's, uh, it depends if you're talking about it from this sort of a neuroscience standpoint or a psychology standpoint, mm -hmm. Um, of course, they are linked, and I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, the fundamental notion or uh, aspect is that um, we evolved from um, sort of lower order brains, and those brains, I think, as I uh, sort of mentioned previously, are really focused or really built for, um, of course, there's the whole evolution aspect, and, and really it's the genes that are driving mm -hmm. this, but those individuals in, in the species are driven to... Uh, find all their resources, consume resources, find mates if they are a mating species and have offspring. That, that's sort of mm -hmm. it um, at, at, a, at a pretty low, pretty low level. And that could even describe things that uh, don't even have what we call a, as a brain, right? They have perhaps a nervous system, mm -hmm. but they're sort of just all reflexes like a in, in a way. 
Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, lobster probably, I don't know enough about <laughs> lobster brain at the top of my head, yeah, but I, they're, they're probably more, uh, more to a lobster brain than you might think. I'm not saying that they're having deep sure, thoughts sure, sure. and they're deeply emotional, but, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of, and, and surprisingly, a lot of the elements in our brain, sort of our, 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 our certainly our, our brainstem, but our midbrain, um, everything aside from the cortex a lot of those components are in very low animals, uh, you know, not just low level mammals, but, um, you know, vertebrates generally, uh, a lot of vertebrates have you know, amygdala, hippocampus. Oh, wow. The limbic um, system. Yeah. Yeah. So many, many, many of these major uh, brain and, areas. And so, just to pause, uh, that's something I'd like to bring the mythology element into, because I think that many of uh -huh. the mythological stories I have access to are explanations of what happens when you have to engage with the amygdala and the hippocampus. And also that many of the stories and what gives meaning to the stories is those driving influences that even drive the lower creatures, like protecting your known territory or finding mm -hmm. or defending your mate or defending you know, your area and seeing some of the higher level organizational principles of our social development emerge. Like all of a sudden, the second that you have a collective territory that you're fighting to defend, Boom! Friendship and trust develop between people, and uh, mm -hmm. and then well, I'll have to ask Sorry, you whether, shared, shared goals. goals, and I'll have to ask you whether there's actually specific circuitry for that at this point. But I'm sorry to to have interrupted you. So you were telling us the story. Well, I'll just say that um, let's see, getting to um, we making our way to confirmation bias, I suppose. Um, there are many cognitive. So more broadly speaking. Um, we as humans have many what people call cognitive biases, mm. right? So, um, and they come in, there's a whole list of these things and it's not as if there's a hard taxonomy well, I don't or, have or about them, how they're right? organized. Only but, other people yeah, have them, right? not me. Uh, uh, well, that would be one of the biases. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> so you do have right. it. Um, and there are many of these, uh, and I'm sure they'll come up, many of these will come up uh, during our conversations um, but as you mentioned, one that is notable is confirmation bias. Um, and even that, you know, there's a lot of nuance to these things. So they could have slightly different descriptions um, or they may be um, confirmation bias may really be two or three different types of biases. And the neuroscience that under, to getting back to neuroscience just briefly, is, uh, that underlies these is often not really well known, but, but is, uh, is many times connections between sort of this ancient brain and the newer brain. Because the, the ancient brain um, or the older brain um, was evolved to take a lot of shortcuts. And those shortcuts, uh, you know, information processing shortcuts, reasoning shortcuts, if they had any sort of real reason, as we would call it, um, they had to be uh, often fast, low energy processes, processes, um, basically just get the animal to, uh, or this, uh, the organism um, fed and bred. So, um, you know, we've built upon that, but we still have some of these existing cognitive biases that are from that lower order system. And evolutionary psychologists can often sort of argue or try to determine whether these biases, uh, had a evolutionary, um, you know, a positive selection aspect or power to them, um, either when we were, in the trees or during our, you know, time evolving into the homo sapiens, uh, into homo sapiens. But, um, I thought 
I know you wanted to talk about confirmation bias. So um, I thought maybe I'd give an example of it and maybe we can, and, and if you're up for it, I'll, I'll, we'll do a, a real time experiment yeah. um, and see how that goes. But after that, then I can say a little bit more about this connection to uh, sort of ancient, to older species or ancient humans and how this might be sort of related. But uh, so I'll just start out with this, which is that um, I think the confirmation, I don't know if the term confirmation bias came from uh, Peter Wasson in the 60s, but he did some of the, uh, the earliest studies on these, uh, on this, uh, studies that were scientific studies, right? This idea that humans may be biased in this way has been around for a long, for many time for a long time. And I'm sure you would know in many examples in ancient literature or ancient philosophy or older philosophy that uh, discuss it. Oh yes. But Alex, let me give you, um, um, so this may not work because maybe you've already heard this, uh, heard this before, gone through this before, but let me do this. Let me give you. And these to a rule. And so your job is then to think about what that rule like me might be, and then produce another triplet that fits that rule, right? So you're really oh. just trying to figure out what the rule is. Does that okay, make sense? Can you tell me the first part one more time? It just so anchor kind of got weird for a second. Yep, that's okay. I'm just going to give you three numbers, a triplet of okay. numbers, and those numbers, uh, they fit or adhere to some rule. And so your goal is to sort of guess what that rule, rule is, just internally think about it, and then produce another triplet. Um, and we can go through a few iterations if we want, but we'll just see how it goes. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So we'll just start it. And, uh, and if you don't understand, then I'll, I'll add to that. But okay, so the, the triplet is um, four, six, eight. So just right. think about what might have generated that rule and then see if you can, you know, sort of tease out what that rule is by producing another uh, triplet. 10, 14, 18. So uh, unfortunately, the audio <laughs> this time went out on me, so uh, I couldn't hear your answer. 10 uh, or something, something. 10, 10, 14, 18. All right, Alex, I don't know if you can hear me. Got it. Yeah, I can 10, hear you. 10, 14, 18. Uh, yes. Yeah, that does adhere to the rule. Do you want to take uh, another guess? Um, let's see. Just to sort let's of see. Scope out yeah, whether you think yeah, you know yeah. the rule or not. 18, 14, 10. That one, sorry, we're, our audio is going bad, but I thought I heard 14, 10 something. Uh, yeah, I, I reversed the order. 18, 14, 10. Gotcha. Okay, that one broke the rule. Um, any guess on what the rule is? Just no, no more. You don't have to guess triple. Let's move on so we can uh, get to the something uh, more interesting. Ascending even numbers. Here, Matt. I'll just so, we can just oh. we can just stop the recording right here really quickly and then just start the next one. I'll just call you back really quickly. Okay, sounds good. All right. See you in a sec. All right. Hey, Alex. Hey, Matt. Sorry about that. Sometimes <laughs> it's okay. It starts to cut far. So, so we, I had said you had given me the original numbers, I think something four, six, eight, or six, eight, ten. Some four, six, okay. eight. Yep. Yeah. Four, six, and then eight. You said 10, 14, 18. And I said, yes, that's correct. It follows the rule. And then I believe you said it in reverse, right? Yes. 18, 14, 10. And you said that broke the rule. And so my right. guess ascending even numbers. Right. 
So you're close. Uh, it is the rule, though, is just ascending numbers. So, uh, 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 so, yes. so there, there's two points to be made about that. One is giving an example of confirmation bias. And I'm not truly saying you were you were biased there. Um, but I mean, it was only two guesses. So uh, but in the end, your, your guess was that the rule was even numbers um, ascending, whereas it was much more broad than that. And that's that, that, that those studies in the 60s sort of dove into that. Um, right. And people essentially, you know, the summary sort of of what confirmation bias is, is that um, people tend to uh, search for information that confirms their, their existing beliefs. Um, and right. that could be gathering information that is going out on the Internet, going to the library, asking friends and family or enemies, uh, <laughs> or it maybe just means searching their mind and, and ruminating. Um, and there's there is some nuance to some other versions of that. So you know, in that example that we just went through, you had no emotional reason to um, you didn't really have a pre-existing belief other than you you established one very quickly, thinking that it might be even numbers that were ascending. Um, but you didn't have a, a strong emotional attachment to it. So there also can right. be emotional aspects that are driving confirmation bias. Um, you know, generally it's thought of as something that people do not, uh, they don't do it intentionally. It's not deliberate, but that doesn't mean that it's not, um, you know, but yeah. they still discredit information that doesn't support their view. Right. Um, and particularly beliefs or, or views that were established early in life, but, but not always so. Well, let me take a uh, step so at that. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Because that sounds, so the first thing I wanted to say when I heard about what confirmation bias is when you said, you know, we have to take shortcuts and that there might be an evolutionary reason for that is that most decisions probably do require that we simply recognize a basic pattern and then act. And the shortest, uh, and the shortest path from thought to action that elicits the, the reward or the appropriate response seems to be probably what we would do the vast majority of the time. And so right. to search for anomaly when things are going right doesn't actually serve much purpose. But when we become highly socialized scientific animals, it becomes, it, and part of the science, say scientific process or the process of discovering truth is not only discovering anomalies that might disrupt the pattern that you believe, but also discovering the existence of other patterns that, that exist in conjunction with the ones that you observe that you will only get sort of uh, primed to see by recognizing the fact that the current patterns, and I know this sort of abstract, that you do observe mm -hmm. uh, are only part of a yeah. whole rather than the only ones that exist. And um, just from a sort of a, a narrative psychology perspective, that you would be primed to perceive people in certain ways and ignore certain details about them. All right, so the point I was on is that from a narrative psychology point of view, people are actually literally affectively motivated in order to maintain their stories, their sort of systems of beliefs, and that the people in their lives occupy roles that are generalized features of their stories, wife, girlfriend, son, daughter, teacher, student, policeman, deli person, and that we are motivated uh, to maintain those stories of those people in order not to have to alter our systems of belief. And so, so it would make sense that we would be sort of naturally primed or or are tooled up in order to see that which we already do see and want to see rather than that which uh, is anomalous to that. 
as well. And that, that I would be a generally effective strategy. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, partially or wholly true, or at least that's some, that's one of the, uh, factors, you know, there's something underlying about our evolution that, that, that gave us these sort of shortcuts and we take, you know, and stereotypes are perhaps one version of these things. Um, and they do sometimes make us help us get through our lives more quickly, more easily with less, you know, rationalize every little thing, every moment of the day, they, they, these give us very effective shortcuts, but they can go awry for us sometimes too. Right. Right. And, you know, just to give a literary example, in the Iliad, which I'm teaching right now, there are two major characters, Achilles, the strongest man, and Agamemnon, the greatest king, and they come to conflicts with, into conflict with each other. And the majority of this story has to do with the fact that Achilles gets the low end of the stick after having sacked 23 straight cities and thinking himself essentially akin to a god. What happens mm -hmm. is that his place within the story is totally upset which upsets his story and his, his very ability to move forward in life. And so, uh, and we can talk about that more as we go on, but it, it's just interesting that the great stories, even one of the great five epics is about a young man getting sort of put in his place after having thought he was sort of a divine invulnerable God and then has to cope with the world and ultimately chooses against it. I think that's something that a lot of young people have to deal with. Uh, to this day, and it will be important for them to see not only why uh, sort of neurologically and from a neuroscience aspect that has to happen, but also from a, the greatest stories that exist, we know that has to happen phenomenolo phenomenologically. Um, I think it'll give people hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so that it gives them hope. Uh, no, that's a really interesting story. And I think, um, you know, perhaps there are little... Um, aspects of that that this is a bit comical but it reminds me a little bit you're talking about sort of adaptation not ad, not environmental or genetic adaptation but adaptation to one's situation or their environment right. and you know there are sort of perhaps neuroscience aspects of that that we could look to look at but it just reminded me of that old uh, these days perhaps 20 year old book uh, who moved my cheese uh <laughs> just <laughs> you know how do you deal with uh changes in your, your life or your environment. And those that um, are able to adapt are, of course, more likely to succeed. So perhaps that's something we can pick up uh, sometime in the future as well. Perhaps that's what we're already doing. And um, so, well, doctor, it's been great having you on the podcast. I'm very Thanks, excited Alex. for the future. Yeah, this is great. Um, I think we can clean up a few technical issues and then uh, make some real progress. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I think I think the sweeping process is going to begin immediately. So <laughs> <Got> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And I look forward to having you on again very soon. Great. Great. Thanks Alex. Talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.